As I said this morning, uh, today we are ending our series that we've been engaged in all summer on opposite themes. As we look at uh, one side of the coin in the morning and another side of the coin in the evening. And uh, one of the reasons for that is next week is the last Sunday in August, and I want to have questions and answers that night. And then in September, we pick up with our open home meeting schedule. And so be looking for news about that as we get into the school months and uh, shift over to that schedule. Very excited about that and um, looking forward to Q&A next Sunday. So I've enjoyed the the opposite themes that we've been able to handle in the mornings and in the evenings. And this morning we talked about waiting. And waiting is usually viewed as a passive requirement. This morning we studied 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 10. Peter's six-step formula for waiting. And if you go back over that and you look at those steps, what they really are are attitudes, not actions. And I doubt anybody was listening to that and wondering, what should I be doing while I wait? Because for most of us, waiting is a passive thing. It's not something that you do. It's something that you just endure. That's usually how we look at waiting. It's something that is passive. And so uh, activities that happen during waiting are usually incidental to the waiting. You're in the doctor's office and you're looking at your phone or, or magazine or a book. You wouldn't be doing that otherwise. You're just trying to pass the time. However, the biblical concept of waiting is an active waiting. And that's why we're able to talk about going tonight at the same time that we're talking about waiting. Christian waiting is a waiting that is active. It's not just something that we pass the time in. Paul adds an interesting adverb to the idea of waiting in this passage, Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Look at it with me, where he says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Wait eagerly. Have you ever done that before? Waited eagerly. What does that mean? It sounds more than just passing the time. Tapping your foot, waiting on time to pass. Eager waiting involves some kind of activity. And so we need to endure and wait with patience, but we can take that too far. There needs to be a balance. Here's something said by John Stott in his commentary on Romans. Some Christians overemphasize the call to patience. They lack enthusiasm and lapse into lethargy, apathy, and pessimism. They have forgotten God's promises and are guilty of unbelief. Others grow impatient waiting. They're so carried away with enthusiasm that they almost try to force God's hand. They're determined to experience now even what is not available yet. Understandably anxious to emerge out of the painful present of suffering and groaning, they talk as if the resurrection had already taken place and as if the body should no longer be subject to weakness, disease, pain, and decay. You can go too far to one extreme or the other. You can be too enthusiastic, overly zealous, and act like 
everything should already be here now. That's the impatience that we weren't about this morning. Or you can become too apathetic and indifferent and act as if there's nothing to do while we wait. And that balance is what we're trying to achieve in talking about these two themes today of wait and go. This morning we talked about wait, but while we wait, God says go. And I want to look at an excellent example of that that's recorded in our text for this evening, Exodus chapter 14. We'll be looking at this all night. And uh, we'll go through it point by point, starting with this. The text opens with an orchestrated test. Exodus 14 falls after the ten plagues, after Pharaoh finally relented and the people of Israel were allowed to go out of Egyptian bondage. Now, they're making their way towards the Sinai Peninsula, but as they start to go over what is now known as the the Gulf of Suez, which is part of the Red Sea, as they're about to make their way north over that, the Lord tells them, In a strange command, he tells them to turn back. Let's read the first four verses of Exodus 14. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. This is a strange command. We don't exactly know where he was telling them to go. If you look at this uh, map, you might recognize the Sinai Peninsula. I don't have a pointer that I can show you this, but this piece of land here in the middle is the Sinai Peninsula. Over here, you have the Gulf of Suez. Over here on the right, you have the Gulf of Aqaba. And uh, this red line that starts up in Egypt represents the path they were going to go. Uh, As they got to Succoth, up there north of the highest body of water over there on the left, the Lord stopped them and he said, turn back. And uh, scholars differ on where they turned back. But most believe, unlike this map where the red line is, most believe that they went west and then south, which hemmed them in with the sea on the east, the mountains to the south and west, and Pharaoh and his armies coming from Egypt down from the north. Now this would make Pharaoh think, I've got them trapped. I can catch up to them. There's no way they can get out. I can get my slave force back. And in this sense, God would harden his heart. It was a test that from a human standpoint seems absurd. It's definitely an unconventional way to flee from an enemy. They basically went into a trap on purpose under the direction of the Lord. And the reason they did this, of course, was so when the Lord delivered them, no one could say, that the Israelites delivered themselves by their own hand, that everybody would know that the salvation came from God. This isn't the only time God has done this kind of thing. We have numerous examples in the Old and New Testaments. You remember how Jericho was defeated when Joshua would later lead the Israelites across the Jordan River 
into the promised land and came to the walls of Jericho. And how did they defeat Jericho? They didn't do it with weapons of warfare, conventional means of fighting. No. For six days, they marched around the city. On the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times. The trumpets blasted, the people shouted, and the walls fell down flat. How could anybody, after Jericho was defeated, say, the Israelites, well, they have a pretty good army. They had some great military strategies. They won that battle by their own power. Nobody could say that because of the way the Lord delivered them. Another great example comes to us from the judges. You remember how Gideon uh, fought the Midianites in Judges chapter 7. He had an army, it looks like, that began with 32,000 men. Pretty good-sized army in those days by those standards to face the Midianites. But the Lord said, this army is too large. So tell everyone whose heart trembles that they can go back home. And you know how many men turned home because they were afraid? 22,000 men. So the force was cut into a third. They're down from 32,000 to 10,000. And then the Lord says, it's still too many. It's still too many. If they win this battle, they might take the credit for themselves and not give God the glory. And so you remember the test that God gave Gideon's men, take them down to the water and watch them drink. And whoever laps up the water like a dog, send them home. But if they scoop up the water in their hand and drink from their hand, they're your army. And only 300 men drank water that way. And the Lord said, that's my army. 300. Against thousands of Midianites. I've heard people say, well, that test was to find out who were the, the, the best men fit for battle. Because when you drink water that way, you can keep your eyes up and you can see the enemy coming. But I don't think that's the point of that. The more I think about it, I think if the Lord was looking for the best fighting force, he, would have, he wouldn't have reduced it down to 300. He would have done something different. Uh, what he was doing was he was trying to make the point that he's making here in Exodus 14, that the salvation is going to come from God, not from the hand of Moses or any other human being. Over in the New Testament, you have the cross. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly, that's foolishness, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross, perhaps, is the greatest test that showed God's salvation came not from man. Because who would worship a God who died on the cross? Who would seek salvation from a crucified Man hanging between thieves. But Paul said, that's your test of faith. That's your test like Gideon's test down by the water. Or like the Israelites being told to turn back and hem themselves in between the mountains and the Red Sea. That's your test. Do you believe in the Savior on the cross? Do you believe that's where the power is? Why do you think God puts us in less than ideal situations? Why do you think life is full of trials and tests? 
Why do you think that so many of our heroes are of the unlikely sort? Men and women whom the world would never choose as heroes. Why do you think that is? Is it not because there's a certain tendency in us to steal God's praise? To say, I've done this for myself. It's all about me. The truth is, he can't trust us with his work until we realize how inadequate we are for the task. And so, before the Israelites got the idea that they were running on their own strength, delivering themselves, he told them, turn back and hem themselves in against the Red Sea. So Moses led them into that pocket, facing the sea in that camp. And in the second place, we come to a cry of distress. This begins in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot, and he took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. Just as God predicted, Pharaoh took the bait and he went down with a hard heart to try to pursue the Israelites once again. Even after ten plagues, he still got it in his mind to make them slaves. Now here is the cry of distress. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold... The Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, we don't have the text of what they said when they cried out to the Lord, but we do have what they said to Moses. Verse 11, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now that's not fervent prayer to God. That's a cry of distress. Let's analyze it a little bit. What's their attitude here? It's an attitude of fear and doubt and distrust. They're panicking. They're worrying. They're anxious. To whom are they crying? The text says they cried out to the Lord. For some reason, we don't have the words they used when they cried out to the Lord. But we do have the words they used in crying out to Moses. And it's clear from that that they are complaining and grumbling as they had before. They had done this before and they will do this again. Uh, the first example of this is in Exodus chapter 5 after Moses first goes to Pharaoh and says, Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, in fact, I'm going to make it harder for your people. I'm going to take away their straw. They're going to have to find their own straw and keep up the same quota making bricks. And that's when the people said, why have you done this to us? You've made us a stench before Pharaoh. You've made our lives harder. Leave us alone. After that were the ten plagues. Moses showed that the Lord would deliver them. They got out of Egypt. 
you know how this story ends. They'll cross the Red Sea and they'll go into the, the go through the wilderness wanderings and they'll approach the promised land and they'll grumble and they'll complain again. They'll complain about the food. They'll complain about the water. They'll complain about the wilderness. Eventually, they'll give up faith in being able to enter into Canaan. And the first generation out of Egypt would fall dead in the wilderness and their children would take the promised land. This is a stubborn people. They complain. Look at Psalm 106, verse 7. It talks about this incident in Exodus 14. Psalm 106, verse 7. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. This isn't, you know, before the... Nile turned to blood before the locusts and the frogs, before the death of the firstborn. This was after all of that, and they're still rebelling by the sea, the psalmist says, by the Red Sea. So yes, I guess in a sense you could say that they're praying. This cry of distress was aimed at God and at Moses, but it's not a proper prayer. The Bible tells us there is a right way to pray and there's a wrong way to pray. James rebukes his readers in James chapter 4, verse 3, saying, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There is a right way to pray and there is a wrong way to pray. Here are a few things that we know, a few conditions for prayer that are very plain in the Bible. For one thing, to pray to God... And to be heard and for those prayers to be answered, you must be a child of God. Prayer is about relationship. As children, we pray to our Father. Proverbs 15, 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. 1 Peter 3, 12 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So first, you have to be in a right relationship with God. You must be a Christian, child of God, to be able to have the, the privilege of prayer. Secondly, you must address your prayers to God. How did Jesus teach us to pray in the model prayer? Matthew 6, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You address your prayer to God. And all the words that we have here in this cry of distress are aimed at Moses. It's like they're putting it all on him. And yes, they cried out to God, but the substance seems to be put upon Moses' shoulders. They're crying out to the wrong person. A third consideration is that we must ask in faith. Whatever you ask, believing you shall receive. Matthew 21, verse 22. James says, if anyone is in need of wisdom, let him ask God and God will give it to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the, by the waves. He says, let not that man believe that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Very clear, faith is a condition for prayer. And then finally, we must ask according to God's will. We can pray whatever we want, but we shouldn't expect God to go against his nature to give us our requests. John says in 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence that we have in Him, 
that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we've asked of him. So there are conditions for prayer. It's not, you know, we don't make this up as we go along. We can't just pray to God however we want in whatever condition or state we are in. God invites us to pray. And he invites us to pray, though, we should know, in our, and, and give to him even our negative emotions. It's not wrong that they were distressed when they cried out to God. The problem was what they were asking for and their lack of faith. But they, there was a way for them, if they had just thought about it, to deliver their pain to God and for him to hear it. They could have done it in an appropriate way. Jerry Sitzer says the Psalms, all 150 of them, provide a model for us. They show us how to express our emotions, not only positive ones like gladness and gratitude, but negative ones like anger and despair. Christ is a perfect example, isn't he? In Luke 22, he's praying to the Lord. He's in a relationship with God. He is praying according to God's will. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But Luke, the physician, tells us that as he prayed, sweat fell like great drops of blood from his head. He was under such tremendous stress and anguish. And yet he prayed appropriately. And that should be the model for all of us. So after this this turning back and being hemmed in, they cry this distress call to God and to Moses. And this is followed by a surprising command. Verses 13 and following. Look at this. Moses speaks up, verse 13. And he said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Here's the surprising command. Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. This is where the idea of this lesson comes. Stop waiting. Now it's time to go. And it's puzzling why he says to Moses, why are you crying to me? I don't know if he was speaking to Moses on behalf of the people or if Moses had been saying a few prayers of his own that aren't recorded here. But whatever the case is, God said, stop praying and go. You keep reading and Moses takes action. He, he tells Moses what to do. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gained glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. There were two prayers. The distressing cry of the people. An unrecorded prayer of Moses. And God told them, stop praying. Stop waiting. It's time to go. Now, why is that? We all know 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Is this a contradiction? 
No, pray without ceasing is not a literal command. Otherwise, uh, many of us right now would be sinning because we're not bowing our heads in prayer. It's talking about keeping the channel open to God and having a prayerful life, always keeping Him in mind and praying continually, never giving up on prayer. That's the sense behind 1 Thessalonians 5.17. There is a time to stop waiting when God opens a door in front of us and walk through it. And one of the reasons is that prayer is not a magic trick. Okay, we treat it sometimes like that. Like it's a spell that we cast. And by our very words, God is going to magically create a new situation for us without our responsibility or involvement in any way whatsoever. But the real truth is that prayer is not meant to change God. Prayer is meant to change us. I think this is an idea that we are surprised by, but the Bible tells us that God doesn't change. It's a fundamental matter of His nature. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Yet we hear all the time, prayer changes God. Prayer is not meant to change God. Prayer changes us. God's greatest answer to prayer is something far different than anything that we could imagine. It's not what God does for us that demonstrates His greatest activity in prayer, but it's what He does in us. And I like what Eugene Peterson said. He said, prayers are not tools for doing or getting, but for being and becoming. And I also like this statement by Oswald Chambers, who said, to say that prayer changes things is not as close to the truth as saying, prayer changes me, and then I change things. Now, I know there are some interesting stories in the Bible where somebody's in a situation, they pray to God, and then God responds by changing the situation. Is that God fundamentally changing His nature? Not at all. That's the person changing so that God can act differently on their behalf. In their prayers, they've come around to God's side of mercy from His side of wrath. That's all that is. Even when God changes matters, it's because we have changed in our attitude, we've repented of our sin, we've changed in our behaviors. We play a role in answered prayers. Now, let me give you a few examples. I think maybe this will make more sense through the examples. We're told to pray for the sick, right? Look at James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And we know that all healing ultimately comes from God. It's all from God's hand. But praying for the sick can involve us as well. You'll note here that James said, call for the elders and they'll anoint him with oil. A lot of people make a miraculous application to that, but the fact of the matter is that oil, as mentioned here, was medicinal in quality back in those days. You can look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. He treated the, the man's wounds with oil. And so it may have just been, you know, the elders will come and they'll bring the medicine of the day to treat him and comfort the person who is sick, and God will heal him. There's, there's activity of God in that prayer, 
and there's activity of God's people, the elders in this case. Is there not something that we can do to comfort the sick while we're praying for the sick? Is there not a visit that we can make or a card that we can write? Is there not errands that we can run? Do doctors and nurses and hospitals not participate in God's healing of the sick? You see, we have a role to play in answering prayers. And sometimes prayers are left unanswered because we didn't complete the the circuit. We didn't do our part. Let me give you another example. We're told to pray for the bereaved. Still in James, look at James 5.13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now, does that mean if you know somebody has lost a loved one, is deeply grieving, that all you have to do is just say a prayer? Is that our sole responsibility? Or maybe we'll just say, praying for you. Walk by them, type it into Facebook, praying for you. I'm not saying that's better than, that, that's not better than nothing. It is better than nothing. But you might also have an opportunity to encourage that person with words, to help them through their grief, to attend to their needs. There's more that maybe you can do, depending on your relationship with that person and the circumstances. Let me give you an entirely different example. What about praying about financial difficulties? You know, there's maybe nothing worse in the world than being swamped in debt, not knowing how you're going to get your next meal, being crippled in poverty. Uh, Financial matters are very serious situations. And and that's why Jesus teaches us to pray in the model prayer, give us this day our daily bread. He's not just talking about bread, and I don't think he's just talking about food. He's talking about all the daily provisions we need. And if you're going through financial difficulties, unemployment, debt, uh, bankruptcy, things like that, you're going to to really be in a bind. And and that requires a lot of prayer. But will God answer the prayer of somebody who takes no responsibility for his or her financial situation? You know, going along with that, there are a lot of guidelines in Scripture about finances. I don't have time to read all these passages, but let me just share with you a few of them. We're to plan for financial situations. Luke 14, 28 and following. We're to... Work hard for success, Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, where the wise man says, Go to the ant, sluggard. Look at the ant, observe her ways, and be wise. We're to be careful about giving loans and be prepared for the borrower not to pay his debt. We're to know that the borrower is a slave of a lender, Proverbs 22, verse 7. We need to understand there are wrong ways to make money. Sometimes you can make more money through injustice, but that should never be the case. Proverbs 16, verse 8. Money is to be used, but it's not to be hoarded. Uh, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5, 13, he has seen people gather riches to their hurt. Uh, You're to manage your money with discipline. Proverbs 13, verse 18. And you're to give generously with a cheerful heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 Verse 7, always include the Lord, Proverbs 16.3, whenever you uh, spend your money and budget your money. Those principles are meant to be followed. 
Can somebody pray, Lord, get me out of this financial bind and ignore all of these biblical principles and expect the prayer to be answered? That's looking at prayer as some magic trick, some get-out-of-jail-free card. That's not how it works. Prayer changes us. God, through prayer, shapes us and molds us and forms us. He's working within us as we persevere in prayer. I could give you a lot of other examples. How about the salvation of sinners? You know, Paul prayed in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. Now, did Paul just go into his closet, as they say, and privately pray that his kinsmen according to the flesh, the Jews, might be saved, and then all of a sudden they started coming around to faith in Christ and, and belief, and, and they were saved despite their, their former, former lives and former uh, sins and ways of thinking? No. Paul did a lot of preaching. He did a lot of traveling. He did a lot of writing and pleading and persuading. He did his part in it as well. So this cry of distress is followed by a surprising command in Exodus 14 because God had made a way for them through the Red Sea, but they needed to take the steps to accept the way that He had made. It was time for them to stop waiting and wringing their hands and crying out and, yes, praying and take action because faith is both prayer and action. And finally... Let's look at the way of escape. Verses 21 and following. I'm back in Exodus 14. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces, and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand, and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You, you know that story well, and you know that way of escape. But I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the people of Israel at that moment, we can be really judgmental about their doubt and their hesitancy, but before they went, it was a sea that was before them. 
we know the rest of the story. They were in the middle of the story. And so before Moses stretched his hand and started to take action, it was still a sea that lay before them, not dry ground. God did not make dry ground and then say go. He said go, and then as they began to take action, the dry ground appeared. Another perspective is in Psalm 77. Look at, look at this with me. Psalm 77, verses 16 and following. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Look at that part where he says, your footprints were unseen. I think we can relate to that. We live in a world where God's hand is not obvious. I believe God is involved in the affairs of mankind. I believe He answers prayer. I believe He's active and I believe He can do anything. He does it providentially, non-miraculously. And many times we can't see God's hand in our life until we look back on it and dwell upon the things that have happened. When we're in the midst of the trouble, standing on the shore of the sea, it's hard to see that dry ground. It's hard to see that door that we're to walk through. When God says go, sometimes it's hard to take that first step. But there's always a way of escape. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way to escape that you may be able to endure it. You may not be able to see it, but there's always a way of escape. As we bring this to a close, I want you to think about that dry ground that is before each and every one of you. It's in the shape of a cross. The way has been made plain to you. That first step may be scary. It may require a lot of faith. Maybe you've been praying a long time and you've been waiting and maybe it's time for you to go. Maybe it's not, not waiting that you need, but an action that needs to be taken. What is it? What is that step into the unknown? Let God lead you. Believe His Word. Believe His promises. Trust Him. If He says go, if He gives you an, a command, if there's something you can do to finish your prayers that He's trying to grant on your behalf, why not do it? Take courage, step forward, and go. We're going to sing an invitation song. If we can encourage you in any way, let us do it right now as we stand together and as we sing.